Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today, we're getting lessons from a lap dancer. She went by the name April, but her name is really June. June Morrow, welcome. I was just re-watching your Jay Shetty video. Oh yeah, the magic Jay Shetty video. <laughs> wow, I wanna dig into that. Okay. I wanna know about the stripper life. Oh my God, overrated. <laughs> overrated. <laughs> and you started at 26? Yeah, I was 26, which is actually kind of old in the business. I was, I guess, kind of running away from home. I wanted to take some time off and figure out what I wanted to do. I'd had some things didn't go so great in my personal life. And like I was divorced and I was in a job that I didn't like. And I tried to do like, it was, it's ironic because I tried to become a motivational speaker and like put all my life savings, which at the time was like $300. It wasn't much into this little workshop that I called the great dream connection. And I was so excited about this. And I was like, I'd seen Tony Robbins and I was like, I'm going to be the next Tony Robbins. I was so like stoked. And I did this workshop and nobody showed up like nobody, two people showed up. They thought it was an English as a second language course. And I was devastated. And I had like no idea what I was doing. Right. So I was like, Oh my God, this is awful. And then I was out of money and I'd quit my job. Because I thought if I do this workshop, I'm going to be the next Tony Robbins. Like I was really that naive. Yeah. So then I had to get a job really fast that I didn't like. Long story short. So then I met this guy and he lived in Toronto. I was living in Ottawa, Canada at the time. Um, And he lived in Toronto. And he was like, come to Toronto. You can make some money as a stripper. And I was like, that sounds good. (laughs) Because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So I just packed up sold everything, moved to Toronto with this guy who I'd known for maybe a month. And yeah, my goal was I was going to work for, I think it was like work for eight months or work until I earned a certain amount of money. Then I was going to take time off and I was just going to travel across the US and hostel and do that whole like hosteling thing. And then I would know what I wanted to do after taking this trip. So when I got into the business, it was, I think it was in September or something. And I decided I was going to work until April and I was going to try and make as much money as I could until April. So I actually gave myself the stage name April. So, so when I introduced myself to people and I'd be like, yeah, hi, I'm April. Right. And they'd be like, what's your real name? And I'd be June. And they'd be like, no way. That is too (laughs) funny. You know, I don't think you're alone in thinking that you can become like a motivational speaker after Tony Robbins. Like, I feel like a lot of people want to do that. Yes. And I think, I mean, there were other things that had happened, like other, I tried to go for other jobs and I messed things up like really bad. I went for one job interview. I wound up like sleeping with the guy and the, like, it was just <laughs> a whole bunch of like, you know, your twenties are for messing up. This was a period where I was just like repeatedly messing up. Yeah. So I was like, I need to kind of get away, put this, put some distance between me and this and figure out what I want to do beyond being a, a motivational speaker. Cause I'd put that dream on hold, which is so funny because when it all comes full circle, right. And then I have this, this speech about being how I got out of stripping that becomes this, this speech that gets viewed by all these people 
on the internet and I am a motivational speaker. (laughs) Why do you think it is that that speech gets the most attention? I think, well, that speech got a lot of attention because I think it was, it's about, you know, we're all, we've all been in places in our life where it's like, we think things can't change. We think things are like, it feels impossible. Right. And I think that's very relatable. Not everybody's been a stripper, but everybody's been in a place where they felt like this isn't where I'm supposed to be. And how do I get out of this when this is the only world I know right now? So I think that's why that speech, why that video took off. Well, one, it's also, it's a little salacious, like, oh, stripper, what's that all about? You know, people are curious, but I think the bigger message is that it is possible to change. And sometimes you don't need to know where you're going. You just have to put one foot in front of the other and just keep going. The path will reveal itself. Did you ever think that you would become a stripper prior to the guy suggesting you do that? Well, yeah, because I had actually tried it once before. Before I married my first husband, before the divorce, I was in a not too healthy relationship. And I got out of that relationship and I was just like free and I was 23 and I saw an ad for exotic dancers wanted and uh, just in the newspaper. And I thought, Ooh, I could do that. That's something I know I'd always like, you know, growing up, I'd seen like burlesque entertainers like Mae West in the old movies. And that was always something very sexy to me. So yeah, so I went and I, I met this guy and he sent me that night to a, a strip club and I just did it for this one night. And it was a very different industry and every state, every province, every part of the world has different laws around what is okay and what's not okay. But at this time where in, in Ontario, Canada, where I was working, it was very hands-off. Like you would actually, you had a little stool and you would bring this little stool around and you'd sit, you'd stand on it and you'd just like wriggle and take your clothes off. And that night I made something like, I don't know, which at the time seemed like an enormous amount of money. But the next day I was walking around and I was looking at guys on the street different. And I was like, I could get a dance from them. I could get a dance from them. I could get a dance from them. And I realized at the time I was like, whoa, who is this person in my head? That's like looking at guys all different. And is this who I want to be? And then my brother found out that I'd been at a strip club that I'd done this. And he said to me, which was really great advice. He said, don't ever do anything you're ashamed to tell other people about. And I had a job at that time. I was working at a bank. So it wasn't like the money was like a big issue. So I, I kind of decided, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to just, this will be like something I did one night. It was exciting and really tempting, but I'm going to not do it. But then after the, the whole, like, I'm a, I'm a motivational speaker. Ooh, I'm not a motivational speaker. <laughs> and the divorce and all of that. After like three years later, fast forward, I was like, you know what? I could do that again. I'm older now. I'm wiser. I've had more experience. I've been married. I'm not jaded about men. I'm like, you know, I can keep my head on and enter this world. And so that's what I did. But I made very strict rules for myself when I started stripping. I decided I was not going to hang out with any of the dancers. I was not going to do drugs. I was not going to drink, you know, on shift. And I was just going to go in and focus on the money and get out and then go home. And that was it. So I think that really helps. What was that world really like, though? You kind of talk about it being a dark place. Yes, it's weird because at the beginning, it was really fun. Like when I first got into it, it was very, wow, this is like being in a nightclub every night and it's exciting and there's all these guys and there's music and dance and you get all this attention and the attention is like a drug. But 
after being in it for a while, you start to see it's actually like, there's a lot of lonely people. And I was stripping at a very different time in history, right? So when I was stripping, the internet had just been invented, so to speak. And it was just become, not invented, but it's just becoming popular. And it was like porn was moving from VHS and CDs. I guess they were CDs maybe then, or maybe it's like VHS CDs into online. So there was like, when I started to see a naked girl, like was very different than like what it is now where you can just type in a few things and have like a webcam girl. Like, so it was very, and I was there during this transition. And so I think I saw the industry change and not for the, for the dancers, not for the better because they stopped getting paid very much. The money all came from like lap dancing and hustling and the, and the lap dances got closer and closer. And in Canada, where I live at the time, the strip clubs got together and they lobbied the government and said, there's not enough Canadian strippers. We need to put this down as a needed profession to bring people into the, into the country. So at that time in the late nineties and the early two thousands in Toronto, there was an influx of girls from like Romania and girls from Russia and girls from uh, Costa Rica and Thailand and all these other countries who some were legit and some I'm honestly, I think they were trafficked, but there was like this influx. And at the same time, there wasn't as much customers. So it was very like much more supply, not as much demand, much more competitive. And I think the girls who kind of stayed in the industry, like it was, it was very, it's a hard thing to do because you put on a face you pretend to be somebody that you're not. And when you do that repeatedly for years, which I felt like, I mean, I was in the industry for six years, which was about four years too long. In my opinion, you start to see, you see like the loneliness in the clubs because the people who were coming to the clubs wasn't, I mean, yeah, there were bachelor parties and, and stuff like that, but you know, the bread and butter that you made your money off of was lonely married guys. And that was sad. Like guys who would just come and they'd come after work and they were married. They, you know, they were in like a relationship that something was wrong there, obviously. And this was their escape. And they got to place someone to be their pretend girlfriend. And it was very clear to me because I was sober that this is what was going on. And I think it just, it felt sad and I felt sad. I felt really sad and I felt kind of trapped in the business because as the money was there somewhat, although it got less and less over the years and the attention and just like, you know, how do, what, what do I tell people? Where have I been for the last six years? I want to know what it was like stepping up onto stage. And if you ever oh, felt. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that part is amazing. If I just got paid for being on stage, taking off my clothes, you know, dancing, like flirting with people in the audience. No problem. I love being, and I still love being on stage with my clothes on now, but I, I loved it. Like that was the biggest high and that, you know, people think that's like, I don't know, like that's you're, you're moving and it's your, you're creating rapport with the audience. And I found that like super, like I would, I would be shaking when I got off stage. I loved it, but I would be shaking. And even like, six years in, like my last shift, my last stage show, I was still shaking. I would always shake when I got off stage because it was such a like adrenaline rush and also terrifying, but fun. Kind of like zip lining. That's how I would describe it. <laughs> like you just, you're just like the music's on, you step out there and you're like, let's just do this. Let's entertain. Let's have fun. And how and do you keep them from not going too far? Well, with your hands. <laughs> It's a lot of like, let me just grab your hands and I'm just going to push them against the couch or wherever you're sitting. 
well, there's also, there's bouncers there. So if things got out of hand, and like I said, I mean, it was very, the, the laws about what too far was really changed over the six years that I danced. So I think now, and I'm not hundred percent up to speed what the laws are here, but I think touching above the waist is okay. Like full, full on touching. And I don't know what it's like. Different States are probably different. I'm sure there's still some States where the girls have to keep their G strings on. Like, yeah, but it was a lot of kind of like wrestling, <laughs> trying to be sexy dancing for them. And then just like wrestling or, you know, you got really good at sensing when someone's hands were reaching out. I mean, you obviously had conversations with some of these clients to find out that they were married. So how did yeah. that go? I wound up basically paying for my, my, my university degree. And honestly, there was like two, maybe four clients that paid for the majority, like 80% of that, who were my regulars. They'd come in every week. We'd sit down, you talk with them, you'd see like, you know what their life was like. And yeah. And then you do like a couple dances, take a break, a couple more dances, take a break. It was like, you would get to know people and you'd learn more about their life. And you, they were like friends in a way, but not friends. Like you cared about them, but you know, like if you ever saw them outside of the strip club, it was really weird. Like if you ever jumped, like bumped into them on the street or whatever, you know, and it's weird because there's a guy that I danced for who still checks out my LinkedIn profile. And I reached out to him a couple of years ago and he never got back. That would be weird. I'm not what about Facebook? About yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there who are looking me up and with my regulars, I didn't pretend to be someone I wasn't either. Like they knew about, you know, my plans for this or like that I had a boyfriend or, you know, I would talk too much about myself because it was about them, but I wasn't you know, I didn't pretend I didn't make up a fake life because it's just, I don't know. I just couldn't do that. Also like did boyfriends have a problem with you doing that? Well, no, I had this one boyfriend when I started the guy who I'd met in Ottawa and who said, yeah, come and move. And he didn't have a problem. In fact, I think he kind of thought it was like a status symbol of some sort because he was a bit of white trash. <laughs> I guess so was I. Um, I got the white trash in me. So yeah. And then when I left him, the next guy I dated, it was really like a token, like, then it was weird because it was like, this was a guy who was like, he, and he was actually a guy I'd met at the club, which was a bad, 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 bad move. Yeah. And he was all, it was all about, Ooh, she's a stripper. And it wasn't even about like who I am as a person that didn't last very long. And then when I met the guy who became my second husband, he didn't really care. Like he wasn't really into strip clubs. You know, he wanted to see me improve my life, but he didn't really, he wasn't really jealous about it or anything. And then I want to go into the breadcrumbs of what happened from the experience of working at the strip club. So I'm in the change room one day and I see this newsletter on the, and I'd always thought about being a journalist. Like I'd always been a writer, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to write books. I wanted, you know, I saw myself working at, it's like the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. Those were my dreams. So everything was all around writing. And I saw this little tiny, like, and it was a photocopied newsletter which I don't even think you know people of a certain age might not even know what a photocopy is these days but it was basically like this photocopy news yeah no there's still photocopiers but it was like really super old school this broadsheet and it was like two or three pages and I read it and it was called the naked truth and it was for dancers by dancers and I was really like it was like seeing this thing was like oh you know like everything stops and there's a spotlight and I'm like what is this and I was like, I need to write for this because I'd been like journaling about my experience. And I was like, I had ideas in my head to talk about being a stripper and I needed a way to do it in a safe way. So yeah, so there was like a little, you know, write for us 
on the back and an email or a phone number. I can't remember which. And so I contacted the person who was in charge and they said, yeah, come to a meeting. We're called the Exotic Dancers Alliance and we're lobbying for better working conditions for strippers in Ontario and in Canada. And so I went to this meeting and it was like this this woman who had been a feature entertainer and had traveled all over the world as a stripper, but back in the day. And then another girl who was a stripper and then like some guy who worked in some legal firm. And yeah, it was just like a really small core group of people. And they wanted to improve conditions for strippers because they knew that, you know, we weren't getting paid correctly. All these fees were probably illegal. Things like even just keeping the pole sanitized, you know, like there's increased risk. Some of the girls were working in a sex trade on the side. So there's risks around that. So yeah, so I got involved with this group and they didn't really have anyone doing their communications. The person who had done the newsletter wasn't really interested in continuing to do that. So I was like, I'll do it. And so basically I taught myself how to do online layout, graphic design and layouts, put together a new newsletter was printed at that time. And then I taught myself like editing and I taught myself writing. And I took this little two page newsletter and I turned it into like a little magazine filled, chalk filled with all different things. And I, oh my God, I loved it so much doing this little magazine. And then of course the internet hit and this was around 2000, 2001. And we're like, oh, everyone's getting a website. We need a website. So I taught myself web design and put it up on the web. And then because I'd done that, then I got involved with Toastmasters because I wanted to be on stage and speak with my clothes on. So I got involved in a local Toastmasters group and I started doing the same thing for them. I did their website and I did their newsletter. And then I took some comedy classes, some improv comedy classes with Second City. And then, then I did like a little improv newsletter and an improv website. And I had all these like little things going on with all these like little volunteer things I was doing on top of stripping. And that was enough, actually. That was that gave me the courage to actually approach like this tiny little community news newspaper and say, hey, could I write for you? Because here's some stuff that I've written for these different things. And they're like, yeah, sure. And I wasn't getting paid anything for a while before I even approached them. I approached there's a newspaper that the homeless people in my community sell on the streets. And it's like it's a fundraiser for them. They get 25 cents or something. So I wrote a comedy column for them for a little bit. And then I wrote community news for this little neighborhood newspaper for a little bit. And then all of that was enough to get a portfolio to get into a postgraduate program in journalism. <laughs> what did you write about? What did I write about in the, in the newsletter for the strippers? Or, or for a homeless publication. Oh my gosh. I, well, I had carte blanche because there was really no edit, like no editor. So I wrote about things like city life, like, like walking my bike up a hill on a hot day. Like, I don't even know. I don't even know. Like I was trying to be like Dave Barry. <laughs> I thought, oh, I could be a humor writer. It was all first person stuff. And it was all about city life and just kind of like slice of life stuff like the month before I started journalism school, I quit stripping for the last time. A couple of years later, I did some stand-up comedy and then I got into this festival of plays. And so I wrote a one woman show called Miss April Day School for Burgeoning Young Strippers, which was all about the what actually happens in strip clubs versus what you think. And it was about this young girl who has all these dreams and she becomes a stripper instead. And, and then how she kind of eventually owns her authentic self and leaves the business. The whole like stripping thing had turned, it turned into fodder for art. What later were your on. dreams as a little girl? I mean, I had lots, but 
I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be Helen Gurley Brown. I wanted to live in the city and write in a national woman's magazine and, you know, or I wanted to be an anchor woman, but not really talk about the news, like not talk about the news, but just be on television. I became a dating coach in my mid forties, right? Cause I did like so many things in my thirties and forties. And now that it's COVID, I'm like doing <laughs> so boring, but I was a dating coach in my mid forties. And I wrote a guide for women called Love Lessons from a Lap Dancer. And what I did was I talked about in this guide, it's an unconventional guide for women who want to date with confidence and put themselves first and understand men. And I start off this book by talking about the things that I learned about men working in a strip club. Do yeah. tell, I want to know that. One day I'm in the strip club and it's like mid-afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, nothing's happening, boring, right? We're all just kind of like sitting there waiting for people to show up. And I go and I sit down with this older gentleman and he's like very well put together. He's got that European, I don't know how you describe it, just like European style, right? And he's probably like 65, maybe even 70. We start talking and I start hustling him a little, right? To try and get to go in the back. It's not happening. And he says to me, he says, April, why do you think men come to the places like this? And I'm like, because they want to dance with me in the back, of course, right? Hey, baby, let's go back. And he's like, no, nice try. <laughs> and he goes, I don't, he goes, I don't know why. And he goes, men come here because they want to feel fearless. Interesting. Women, women want to feel safe men want to fear, feel fearless. And this is so true because when I got into studies of gender intelligence, when I became a dating coach and started looking into like, what is it that men want? Like really, they want to feel like the guy, right? They want to feel powerful. They want to feel like they can take care of a woman. Not that they have to take care of a woman, but they, if they want to, they can and women, we want to feel like our guy is not going to abandon us just because of biology, right? We don't want to feel like a guy's going to use you and then lose you. We want to feel like safe around him. So it was really interesting. So that, that one thing really stuck with me. And when I became a dating coach, I started looking more into that. And I tell that story in the book. That was kind of like a really important thing that I hadn't realized up until meeting this guy is that that is why guys come there. They come there because they want a fantasy where they're the guy, where they don't have to worry about impressing or disappointing anyone. And it's a very clear cut and dry transaction. Here's some money. Pretend that you love me, right? Show me your boobs, right? Help me forget. There's no complexity to it. You don't have to court or dine anyone. It's just kind of like, this is it. Do you think that men feel loved just from showing them your body? No, no, no. No, that's a totally different thing. Yeah. But I think the guys, the regulars, I don't think it was about feeling love that I think it was about helping them feel big, like helping them feel like the guy, right? Like the regulars who would come in and they were married and they weren't getting that at home. They were probably going home and their wives were like nagging them or, or like they'd both let their themselves slip because of kids and marriage and whatever. Or maybe like their, their life wasn't as good as they wanted it. Maybe Maybe they were like, you know, at work, they weren't performing as well as they wanted or their pay wasn't what they wanted, but they could come into a strip club and they could be the guy. And get you make a guy like feel guy. like the guy. How do you make a guy feel like the guy? I think you just like, let him be a guy. Like you notice and you appreciate the good things about him. 
if he wants to treat you, you let him treat you. And this is something like, I think a lot of women, and I had to learn this, man, I, I learned, because I used to be like, no, I am paying my half of this date, right? Like I was so dead set on this. But when I stopped doing that, when I started being like, okay, you know what? I'm going to let you try and impress me. I'm going to hold back. I'm going to make you work for it a little bit. And then if you want to pay and that's what you want, I'm going to accept it. I'm not going to expect you to pay, but if you want to pay for this meal, and it makes you feel good to be out and, and enjoying my company, then I'm going to accept that. And that makes guys feel good. Not when you expect it, but when you accept it, when you accept their advances to try and please you and you show that you're pleased. So here's an example. So I meet this guy online. We have good rapport. We go out on a date and he's got money. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to bring, we're going to go to this place. And I say to him, okay, I'm just going to tell you up front. I can't afford that place. Like that's out of my budget. And he says, no worries. It's on me. And I'm like, okay. So we go on a date and it's an okay time, but I'm not attracted to him. He pays. That's okay. That's okay with him. He knows this is the game. This is the, the game. This is you meet people. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And he agreed to pay. So it wasn't like I expected them to pay for me, but if they offered to pay, then I'd be like, okay, whether I was attracted to them or not. So after you started working for the paper and then you ended up going back to school, yeah, what, yeah. what happened next? I graduated from that. I worked at a magazine, not a woman's magazine, but I worked like part-time at a business magazine and in journalism school, I'd majored in magazines, but I'd kind of regretted my decision I'd, I'd, coming out. I kind of wished I'd done broadcast because I do love being on camera and I love performing, right? So I was doing stand-up comedy on the side, getting some pro gigs along that way. And then a friend of mine and I, we decided to start our own vlog as they were called back then. I don't even know if they call them vlogs anymore, but like this video show where we went out every night and we covered something to do in Toronto on a Monday night and called it 52 Mondays. So I did that for a year. And then I had like a live, live comedy show for a while, like a live comedy variety show. Then I did the play then I was working at like a community. Then I started actually getting some on-air stuff, working for a community television station, like doing community reporting, which I loved, like going to like pancake flips and stuff, like breakfast television type stuff. I loved that. Yeah. And then my husband, the guy who I'd met when I was still stripping, he was my husband by this time. And then he was doing his own business. His business failed. I had to get much better paying work. <laughs> than all these little side gigs that I was doing here and there with top, like it just was not adding up. So I wound up temping and then temping led me into the government. In the government, I realized that all of these skills that I'd learned through journalism school, through working in magazines, the PR stuff I'd done promoting my shows, the, I, the video stuff I'd done. I'd also been a videographer for a little while because I bought some video equipment, the editing stuff of videos, all of this was desperately needed in the government. So I wound up working in internal communications for 11 years in the government. So doing videos and doing writing and editing employee relations type stuff or employee engagement type stuff. And then that turned into more doing stuff for the political arm. And then I had to get out. Why did you have to get out? Because I was doing stuff for the political arm and I, that is not my thing. <laughs> I have no censor with the politicians. so <laughs> It's not safe. There's a thing called political acuity that you need to be really successful in a government career. And I just don't have it because I'm, I'm filterless. Yeah. I'm also interested, like you said, when you first started stripping and you saw people on the street that you started looking at them, like, mm -hmm. I wonder if, you know, they would come to a club. Did you experience any of that in the government? 
Oh no. Cause there's been so much of a, a time difference. So no, there was, there wasn't really any overlap, but I will say this, like the six years that I was in the business, like it does mess with your head. And it took me a very long time to get over this idea that my body is my main money-making vehicle, like to, to really value my mind. Yeah. It did. It did mess with my self-esteem. Huge. I wrote that but, down. That's really an interesting realization. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't recommend like, you know, those people that girls out there are like, I'll do this, right. This will be fun. I'll make some cash. But I think there's a danger. There's a real danger to your self-esteem and your self-perception and your perception of the world. And I would see young girls, because I started, as I said, 26 is old for a stripper. I would see girls who start when they're like 19, 20, 21, and they would be so messed up by the time they were 24, 25, 26, you know, like I saw girls start like this nice girl next door type. And then like within three years they're hooked on Coke or they're doing porn or like, not that there's anything wrong with porn, but I just think like there's more to us than our bodies. And for me, maybe it's just me projecting onto them. But for me, I knew there was more to me than my body, but it was really hard to get out of that feeling. And also this feeling of like, man, like guys should be fucking falling over their feet for me like that's kind of like that's a little bit of ego shit that happens to strippers and you know and then you go out and you're dating you're like why isn't this guy like falling over his feet like I deserve look at me all these guys want to pay me to see me naked I'm so special I'm a diva right and that's like is that attractive when you're on a date probably not (laughs) right what was your childhood like my childhood was pretty normal I have like two parents they're pretty loving you know uh, I grew up in a nice, like kind of lower middle-class home that became, I guess, upper middle-class through over time. Yeah. You know, I can't say like I was ever sexually abused or all these like stereotypes of why you would do this. I do know I've just always wanted attention. Like, and from a very young age, I've always loved like, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And I don't think that's, I think that's just a personality thing, you know, where my sister's like, don't put me, my sister's hilarious, but she's like, don't put me in front of an audience. I'm like, put me on stage. Where do you think that stems from? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because I'm the, the youngest. I've got an older sister, an older brother. And certainly by the time the third kid comes around and, you know, my parents raised me in the seventies. So they're both working. They're not home very much. They're exhausted. They're doing the seventies parents thing, hanging out with other parents. Yeah. And my brother doesn't want anything to do with me because I'm a girl. Yeah. I, I guess it's just that like you're, a, you know, when you're the youngest, you're like, oh, isn't she cute? And then you're like, I want more of that. <laughs> How did your parents react to finding out that you did that? Yeah, so they were disappointed. I lied to them for the first two years. Then I came clean to them and they're like, yeah, we knew. They were disappointed. But at the same time, I think, you know, they could tell people that I was doing volunteer work with some charities and there were other things that they could tell people. And I'd actually, in the middle of like those six years, I'd gone back to school and got a BA as well. So before I went to journalism school, so I kind of, when I came back from my trip, like I stripped until April. Then I went on this trip and I came back in September. And then I decided on the trip, I needed to go back to school, finish my, my bachelor of arts or get my bachelor of arts, I should say. So I went and I got a BA and I did that all by correspondence on cassette tapes back in the day. Yeah. And so they could tell like their friends, oh, June's doing her, she's doing her BA. And then there could be like, oh, she's doing some writing for this charity. So they had like ways to kind of, if people asked what I was doing to not necessarily say, oh, June's a stripper. We're so disappointed in her or anything like that. And they were, they were really like, they were like, we're going to love you, whatever you do. Right. They're really great that way. They were like, we're going to love you, whatever you do. We're not necessarily going to agree with what you do or like what you do. And when I quit, they were all like, oh, thank God. (laughs) 
What about when you got divorced? The first or the second time, I, they were supportive as well. They really, they let me make my own mistakes and learn from my own mistakes. How did you meet your first husband? The first one, I met him in high school. Mm. So he was my high school sweetheart. Then we broke up because I found him boring. Like at first I thought he was all cool because he seemed like rebellious. He made his own beer and he wore a long trench coat. This was like the late 80s. It was very like, whoa. It was before, before trench coats were a very different sign of things. And then I got involved shortly after that with this horrible guy who was basically abusive, right? Like just toxic, toxic. And I was on and off with him for three or four years and completely lost myself in this relationship with this awful man. And then I ran into my ex-boyfriend from high school in college and we just started hanging out as friends. And we're like, wow, this is really fun. You're really fun. You're really fun. And he was such a relief from the crazy roller coaster that I'd just been on. So I ran like into his arms. I was like, oh, you know, when we decided to finally like, why aren't we together? And then we hooked up and we had good chemistry. And that's pretty much how I met him. And then he proposed at his office Christmas party, which I think is a sign. (laughs) And then all he did was work. He worked, 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 worked. And we were in, I was like, you know, you're in your mid twenties. And there were things like Lollapalooza and like, festivals and that whole like 90s rock scene and I just I wanted to travel and I wanted to go and you know do fun things in our 20s and he wanted to build a career by a you know the house with the picket fence and start a family and I just was not ready those were conversations we probably should have had before we got married but we were young we were in love oh my gosh wow so when did that hit you like that you were maybe ready to settle down that I was ready yeah I think during COVID (laughs) Like, I don't even think I'm ready now. I think I'm, I think I need to still do some work on myself, but I think when this finally ends, I'm going to move again. And then I'm going to start seriously looking for number three. Well, God love you for still wanting to do that. Oh, I love marriage. I love men. (laughs) How do you find somebody that is right for you? Knowing what you want is so important. So, so, so important. And sticking to that right? Like knowing what is of what is the most important. So knowing like, okay, these are my values in life and I need somebody who's going to have similar or complementary values or else it's not going to work. I think that's, that's the key. And then just getting like getting out there and being busy and letting people know that you're looking and, you know, referrals. <laughs> yeah. So you did work as a dating coach. Like, yeah. did you have some successes there? as a dating coach or when I was when I was a dating coach I was in a relationship that was like it lasted about three years and then that ended then I was like (laughs) were you able to coach other people into good relationships though I was but I think the reason I'm not a dating coach anymore is because people would come to me and they'd be like I want a relationship and I'd be like you need to work on yourself first a relationship is not going to solve this right? And people did not want to hear that. They didn't want it. They wanted, you know, no, just tell me like how to text this guy so that he's going to call me back. Well, I'm like, he's not calling you back because <laughs> he doesn't want to be with you. Like, and it's not about you, but it is about you. Like you need to create some boundaries. And I kind of came up against this issue again and again, with people who were like, you need to create some boundaries and you need to really value yourself more. If you want to find somebody who's going to value you, you need to value yourself. Yeah, no, tell me about the process of putting together a book too. That was good. I mean, I loved it. I want to write another book. I love writing. So it was good because I got to draw and like, I have dated so many men. Like 
you know, I think if there's one thing that makes me stand out, it's not the stripping. It's like the sheer number of men I have dated in my life. Serious. Like it's abnormal. It's like in the, you know, three digits, like it's not normal. So <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but writing. What have you says, learned from that? Like, a, well, value yourself, <laughs> right? Put yourself first, know what you want. I mean, but for a lot of these guys, the guys I dated was like, I didn't really want to be in a serious, I wanted to play the field. I want, I was out of a, you know, a, a long-term marriage and I was like, I'm free, let's have fun. So yeah, but back to writing the book, the process of writing a book was great because I got to draw on all the things I learned from many of those scenarios. So that was, that was good. That sounds like a comedy show right there. Yeah, probably. That'll probably be like the fourth, <laughs> fourth thing I do with stripping, like write, write the, the sitcom. I don't know. I think I'm done with, I think I'm ready to put the stripping story to bed, but the, the men's story, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that'll, maybe that'll go somewhere. <laughs> I've only had one COVID boyfriend. He's gone. This year, I don't think there's going to be any boyfriends. And this will be like the first year of my life where I probably haven't dated anyone since and I was what 12. has that been like for you? Like, has oh, that been reflective? So boring. <laughs> I mean, it's supposed to be growth. It is growth. It's growing. But it's just, you know, like I like where I live right now, I'm in Toronto. We're in lockdown. We've been in lockdown since October. Like, it's just like nothing's open. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. There's not even restaurants. Like, it's frustrating. I think if it was like a non-COVID time and I could get together with my friends and we could hang out and do social stuff. Yeah. But now is not a good time to be dating period for me. And it was actually COVID that broke us up. It wasn't COVID that broke us up, but COVID was like the precipitating factor because the city went into a stricter lockdown. And I knew this guy was hanging out with his family and that his family, people in his family were hanging out with who knows who, right? Because he had like young, uh, younger people in, his, in their 20s, his nieces and his nephews who were still going out partying. And I said to him, and because my, I, my roommate is immunocompromised, I did not want to risk catching something and bringing it home to her. So I said, let's chill on the seeing each other in person for a bit, you know, until this next stage is done. He just ghost, like he ghosted me for three weeks. He didn't call me after being like, we spent New Year's Eve together. That was it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, if you were really into me, you would have reached out to me because guys, if they want something, they're going to make an effort. What do you want in the one? So I want the guy who is the one to be like a very stable guy. to be like a rock right like a real steady guy but also creative he's got to have like some appreciation of creativity some you know and be open to personal growth and spiritual things he doesn't necessarily have to be hardcore into them but open to that not like don't even say the word spirituality me I'm like hardcore rationalist scientist my dream guy plays guitar (laughs) and loves to take pictures so that he can play guitar. I can sing because I'm a singer. We could be in our band together. He's kind of like an ambivert like me. So he likes socializing and like having dinner parties and being with friends, but he also needs his alone time. He reads. Very important. He's a reader. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Ask your dad about the men want to fear feel fearless. Ask him what he thinks about that. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah definitely want to know his opinion yeah I might even ask my own husband that all right I love it tell me what's next for you what I'm doing now is I do uh, copywriting for copywriting and content strategies 
for small businesses. That's kind of where I am work-wise these days is helping small businesses with language that reflects, you know, the worth of what they do and connects them with their ideal audiences. So still writing in a different way. And I'm sure there's like some sort of creative artistic play something that's going to come up in the next year or so. I can feel it bubbling, but I'm not sure what it is yet. Is there particular verticals that you prefer to work in? Yeah, I work with I'd like coaches, people who are in the spiritual world. I also work really well with technical people. I love, this is what I love. I love taking people who like, they don't know how to put what they do into words that other people can understand. And I love helping them make it more tangible and concrete for like a consumer audience. So okay, awesome. yeah. Yeah. So let people know how they can connect with you. Yeah. So you can check me out. I'm at junemorrow.com. If you want to learn more about me. Yeah. I loved reconnecting with you. This was so much yes. fun. It honestly brightened my whole day. Yeah. I'm sure you learned lots. <laughs> yes. We will have to do this again sometime. Yes. Thank you so much. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. All right, dad. So June wanted to know, do men go to strip clubs because they want to feel fearless? I am interested to know what you think about that. I could be wrong about this, but I think a lot of guys go to uh, strip joints to have a good time, to not have to think about anything. It's like going to La La Land and to get to see a lot of uh, beautiful girls and see them naked without having to come up with the words of uh, how to get them to take their clothes off and to drink and party and have a good time. I do think that it helps build confidence is why they go. And I, I, a lot of times a man doesn't go by himself. He goes with a group of guys to where it's uh, an outlet to, to see some action and hope uh, maybe also uh, a lot of times uh, guys go to these strip joints where they think that uh, also that they might get connected or make themselves feel good with these lap dances and getting close to a, a woman. Some of these guys might not have the best of looks and it do doesn't seem to matter because uh, they get the attention by paying the price basically rather than uh, necessarily having the, the game to get there. And what do you think about her game? And what's ironic is that you are a young lady at the time. It's really funny, your name is June and uh, you were having some April showers. The fact is, is that I think that you were craving attention. You wanted to be able to do a lot of the things you're doing now, but couldn't seem to have it become a happening. And because you also are stimulated by being on the stage, by also having a lot of attention is what you look like you demanded from men and the spotlight, that this was really your avenue to getting that type of attention. And to me, it sounds like you wanted to be fearless and non-committal. And the funny part is, is that you mentioned that girls are looking for commitment and something stable. And yet, I hate to say this, but it looks like you want to be able to have the confidence and to be with a lot of different men and where you're playing them rather than them playing you, not really looking for someone that's really stable and that's going to be there, but someone is just going to be there to give you a good time. Isn't that also part of being in La La Land? Because that way you don't have the responsibilities of really being tied down to a serious relationship where it's not just about your feelings, but where you have to concentrate on the feelings of others and be accountable for it. It's also a way to avoid that. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, 
Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 